Jeff and Jody Brooks were the new owners of a brand new home in Annapolis, Maryland. It was a house that they were really excited about. It was one in which they envisioned settling down in as a family, to have kids and to raise their kids in. It was a home that uh, was in a good neighborhood, a great location, had plenty of space and a lot for the kids to play in. In April of the very first year that they lived in this house, their son was walking outside of the house and noticed coming out of the house between the soffit and the bricks, a three-foot snake. (laughs) It gets worse. A few days later, Jeff, the dad, was down in their finished basement and slithering along the carpet was a seven-foot rat snake, which he promptly called the pest control and they disposed of. But later that very same afternoon, there was in that same basement coming out of the woodwork, a four-foot snake. These were just the first examples of numerous occasions where Jeff and Jody saw snakes in their house and around their house. Jody describes having sleepless nights during this period of time. I I think we can understand, right? Not sure when or if the next snake would show up. So after a while of this, a month or so, Jeff and Jody were convinced to gut their basement, to take the drywall off and to check to see what's really going on inside their house. It does get worse. What they found was that there were snakes and snake nests all throughout their house on every single level. That in fact, the the snake expert, and there are such people, so the snake expert, I don't know who'd want to have that job, but there are some. The snake expert said that it is Likely, it is clear that their house had become a snake den several years ago. Worse yet, that if they got rid of all the snakes, exterminated them, the phenomenes, which I didn't know that word before this week, but it's like the scent the animals give off, in the house and in the soil would mean that snakes were sure to come back. Like to play Would You Rather. Would you rather have snakes on a plane or snakes in the walls? (laughs) How about neither, right? Needless to say, Jeff and Jody Brooks do not live in that house anymore. Now, the reason why I bring up this story that you're sure likely not to forget (laughs) is because it illustrates something that is at the root and the heart of the message that we have for us today. Our first fill-in for today is that point, that the impact of the exterior of something will be shaped by the condition of the interior. What goes on on the outside 
will be shaped by what's going on on the inside. Does that make sense? So with this house, it didn't matter how great a neighborhood it was. It didn't matter, you know, how much room there was in the house or that it was the perfect floor plan. It didn't matter because there were snakes in the house, right? And they moved out of it. This truth is transferable to almost every area of life. Let me give you some examples. You can have a car that looks immaculate on the outside, but if the engine doesn't work, it's not much good because the impact of the thing will be shaped by the condition of the interior. Um, We had to get a new fridge uh, a couple weeks ago. It looked great on the outside. It just didn't cool anything, or at least sporadically. So we had to get a new one. This is true with relationships, with people. It's true in business. If the corporate culture is not healthy, it's going to impact everything. It's true on teams. It's true in marriages. If the two people that make up the marriage aren't healthy and going after the same thing, it's not going to be as successful exteriorly or impactful as it could be. This is true with people. Your greatest impact comes after and when you and I are spiritually, physically, and emotionally healthy on the inside. Before that happens, the exterior cannot be all that God wants it to be until things are right on the interior. We're shaped by the condition of the interior. This same thing is true with the church. I mentioned a little while ago that we're just a week away from our ceremonial groundbreaking and a week or two away from the actual moving of dirt. And this has been a very purposeful and specific time for us to be able to talk a little bit about the why behind the what. Why are we making these sacrifices? Why are we doing all the work together to build a new building? What's it all about? And in week one, we talked about how, that, how the role of those who know, who know what Jesus did, their role is to go. For those who know, their role is to go. For those who understand that Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross in our place, for those who know that we have heaven by faith in him, that has changed our lives, change our view of eternity and purpose in this life, it is now our purpose, our role, to go and share that with others. That's the purpose that we've been given. That's, that's the, the mission that God has, has given to us. But what we're going to see in Nehemiah today is that we need to be very careful about what can lurk on the inside. What can lurk on the inside of us? What can lurk on the inside of churches? What can lurk on the inside of businesses? That wherever people are, this thing can lurk. And it's so important for us to recognize it. And then Nehemiah is going to help us see what we can do about it. So Nehemiah um, was a Jew who traveled from Persia to Jerusalem. He had been a cupbearer in Persia in the mid-400s BC. He had it on his heart 
to do a building project. Um, Not build a church, but to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And we clearly see that this was much more than just Nehemiah having a bright idea. This was something that God wanted. This was something that God called not only Nehemiah to, but Israel to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so that's what he did. Nehemiah was the leader of it. He was kind of the foreman of it. And last week in Nehemiah chapter 4, we were introduced to two guys with funny names. Their names are Sanballat and Tobiah. And in chapter 4, we see how these two outsiders, what I mean by that are non-Jews, people from neighboring countries, how these two guys did whatever they could to organize a group of people to stop the rebuilding of the wall. In fact, what they did was threaten those who worked on the wall with death. They were going to make it happen that those who worked on the wall would be killed. And throughout the storyline of chapter four, we see how the Israelites' initial fear of Tobiah and Sanballat and of their threats by the end of chapter four turned into a great confidence in God and his direction and his purpose. And in fact, we see how many of the workers were on the wall with a tool in one hand building and a spear or a sword in the other hand, just in case the enemy came. An amazing amount of trust and fortitude and strength they had. They were going to continue building. In fact, if you are there in the 400s BC and you listened very closely from a distance, you might have heard them singing something like this. And we can build this wall together, standing strong forever. Nothing's gonna stop us now. So that's, that's the first time I ever sang in a sermon. And, you know, I, yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> it, it will be likely the last time that I ever do it. But that's the kind of emotion that is at the end of chapter four. Like, nothing's gonna stop us. Sanballat and Tobiah gave it their best. We are moving forward. We're building this thing. But then comes chapter (laughs) 5. Begin with verse 1. Now the men of Jerusalem and their wives, and that's usually how it goes. Maybe sometimes it's the wives encouraging the men to raise a outcry (laughs) against their fellow Jews. So this word in the Hebrew for outcry is interesting because it's one that also is used uh, for the word, the root, for the word thunder. And, And the point is, is that whatever it is that they have an outcry about here, it is a huge deal. It's not a minor thing. This is, a, as it says in the English, a great outcry. Well, what is it? Verse two. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order, in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Verse 3. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Verse 4. Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So here's what's going on in Jerusalem. Food has become hard to come by. 
And there is numerous factors for this. One is mentioned in verse 3 that there was a famine. So things weren't growing the way they normally would or should. But there was other factors going on here. Um, it's interesting to think about that as we read through Nehemiah in the first few chapters, we see how all of the people were all about the building project. They were all about building the wall as God directed them through Nehemiah. And so you know what happened? They, they left their fields. And so they weren't there to, to plant their fields. They weren't there to, to harvest their fields. They weren't there to protect the food that was growing. So it was open to just about any enemy to take food from the fields. And then what money that they did have, what little money that they did have, Much of it had to be given back to the Persian king because of the high taxes. And so this is a really tough situation. Things were very difficult for Israel and for the the Jews building the wall in this moment. And throughout the accounts of the Old Testament, this isn't the first time that we've seen God's people struggle with being hungry. You think about the 40 years in the wilderness. There was more than one occasion where God's people, the Jews, Israelites, cried out a great cry because of their hunger. But the only thing is that every single time there, not every, but most of the time, their crying out was to who? To God, who's not taking care of them. Things would be better in Egypt. Remember them crying. It was in a a difficulty with God. But what does verse 1 say? Let's go back there. They raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Hmm. It's different. Why would they be upset with the people around them? Well, let's go to verse 5. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are just as important as theirs, seems to be some factions within the group. Yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Next slide. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, and we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So here's what was going on. In order for the Jews building the wall to have enough food to eat and to survive, they were doing everything they could in time of desperation. They were selling their fields. They were selling their homes. They were selling their vineyards. It got so bad that they were even having to give up their children to either pay the debt that they owed or to receive the food for them and their children that they needed to survive. The worst part of all of this and why they were crying out against their fellow Jews is that the people that they were getting loans from, the people who were taking exorbitant interest from them, the people who were receiving their sons and daughters as slaves were not some outside entity or nation that had no affiliation with Israel or the Jews. The lenders and the takers were their own flesh and blood. Were the the same people who in part were working on the walls. The people inside the walls of Jerusalem were not being a blessing to each other. 
But instead, we're fighting with each other. And so there goes out this great outcry against their fellow Jews. See, the people of Israel were united around a common mission. The, the mission was this on the screen, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And you got to understand, they went about that with so much determination. We saw that in chapter four. Nothing was going to stop us now, right? They left their jobs, their normal jobs. They worked hard. They risked their lives. They were all about the mission. And through it, they came upon some hard times. Now, there was a whole other part of the, the Jews within the walls who had more than those who didn't. And instead of asking the question, how can I help this mission of getting the wall built, done, by enabling the people who are working on the wall to not have to worry about the food, not gouging them by taking their sons and their daughters and 12% interest and all of that. Instead of asking what they could do and what they could give, they looked at the situation and guess who they thought about? Themselves. Instead of being focused on mission, they were focused on themselves. And essentially they asked this question, hmm, this looks like a good opportunity. What could I do to get rich off this bad situation with my fellow countrymen? And that's exactly what they did. In the midst of this great mission that God had given Israel to do, there's a segment of people who are more about me, myself, and I than about the mission. Our next fill-in says this. When I am the focus, the mission will get out of focus, it should be. When I am the focus, the mission will get out of focus. <laughs> what happened because of this? What happened because of a segment of the, the, the Israelites were, were off mission? Well, a lot happened. People were losing their fields and their homes. People were going hungry. Sons and daughters were be sold in, being sold into slavery. You know what else happened? You didn't notice it because we know it by its absence. What haven't we talked about it all yet today? The wall being built. The mission that they were given was halted because there was this unity among the people. Now, this is really ironic if you think about chapter 4 and chapter 5. In chapter 4, you, you've got some outsiders who are really powerful and want the Israelites dead. And the group together, arm in arm, weapon and tool, continue to build the wall. Nothing's going to stop us now. But in chapter 5, there's disunity with the insiders. And in many ways, it's more destructive 
than what any outside enemy could be to united Israel. When I am the focus, the mission will get out of focus. Do you know what lurks in all of us like snakes in a wall? A temptation to view life, marriage, our job, everything through the lens of me, myself, and I. And the reason why that's such a big temptation is because that with our sinful nature is what comes naturally to all of us, to view life through the lens of me. But when I am the focus, the mission of the group gets out of focus. Um, let, me, let me use some examples outside of church world, right? I mentioned some of these before. Have, have you ever worked at a job where a coworker or two, and this especially is true if it's the boss, is all about himself and the numbers and rising the ranks, the corporate rank or whatever it might be, and getting the bonus? What does that do to the health of the organization or to your enjoyment of working there? It goes so down because you have someone who's focused on themselves and not about the mission. You think about that for those of you who've played sports. You ever play with someone who's all about the stats instead of winning? How fun is that? Well, it's fun for him. It's not fun for everyone else, right? Because he, I, have become the focus. Um, what happens when this is true about a marriage relationship where, where our whole view of marriage is what I can get out of it versus what we can go after together and support and love each other in? Marriages don't work when I am the focus. This is also dangerous when it comes to church. For those of you who are brand new to church and the Bible and maybe are still trying to figure out what it is that you believe, I want to be really clear that the first thing that you need to do is to continue to explore, to search, to figure out, to pray about who Jesus is. Because the mission that we're going to talk about only comes after the relationship that you have with Jesus. And so your effort, your focus needs to be on who Jesus is. And when you focus on that, let me, let, me under, let me tell you something, that all of the other questions you have about the world and the Bible become just a little less important when you recognize and when you discover and when you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior from sin. There's still other questions, but they're not quite as important once you've established that Jesus is your savior. So if that's you still searching, the rest of this is not for you. But for those of us who understand what Jesus has done, for those of us who believe what we sang earlier about the virgin birth and Jesus come to earth and Jesus rising from the dead to give us eternity in heaven, for those of us who believe that and who have a relationship with Jesus, let me, let me tell you something about the church. It's a place of great strength and encouragement, or it should be. 
for every single believer. Where when you come and you sit shoulder to shoulder with people who believe what you believe, when you gather in circles and small groups throughout the week, when you hear the word of Jesus, the gospel preached, that something happens in us because the Holy Spirit works through that message and through that fellowship that we have together. The church is a great blessing to those who believe. But it's also a great opportunity for those who believe to make a difference. You see, when Jesus gathered the church together, those who believed right before he ascended into heaven, some of his final words were this, go and make disciples of all nations. You who believe, now go out and share that life-saving message with others. The way that that we've kind of summarized it here at Bethlehem to just make it really simple and easy to remember. You can find it on the screen. We say that our mission is to lead people to Jesus. Why are we here? What are we, what are we about? What's our mission? Are you here to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? No. Are you here to, to build an immaculate building between Iberia and Dodd? No. Why are you here? Why have you gathered together? Well, we're here to lead people to Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that people have all that they need for this life and for eternity. Now, what we can't do is what the disciples would do. Remember a couple occasions where uh, disciples would, would see Jesus and then they would go get friends and lead them right to Jesus to see him. We can't do that. We lead people to Jesus through the message, through the word. We share timeless truth, truth about Jesus. And what we're really passionate about at Bethlehem, and you've heard me say this over and over again, but, but we need to remember it, is that we're passionate about sharing that timeless truth in a timely way. We're, we're, a, we're a group gathered around this, this idea that we would like to remove every obstacle that there could be so that people see Jesus in all of his truth, all of his love, and all of his power. And we are not going to allow cultural things to get in the way. Instead, we're going to look at every single thing that we do and wonder, does this connect with people of 2018? The way we do things, the way we say things, the way we apply things, does it connect with people today? Now, in order for that to happen, my friends, there's this little shift of thinking that we need to continually keep in mind. And and you've heard me probably, maybe it was a few years ago, because I I know you remember everything I say, um, talk about this, but it's something we talk again and again about in starting point every time and something that I, I need you to, to hear again. That so often when we go to a new restaurant or we go to a concert or we go to a play or we go to anything, the question that comes to mind first is something like this. Do, do I like that? Do I like it? 
And in the many ways, there's nothing wrong with this question. And in fact, we can't really help it. That's just <laughs> what comes naturally. It comes naturally to me too. But when it comes to us being on mission, we want to be a church where we are able to ask ourselves whether we like something or not. That just comes naturally, right? You're not prohibited from asking that question, but it's not the first question we ask. The first question we ask so that we are on mission, something like this. Does this help us to better lead people to Jesus? Now, many times it's a bonus that what we like also is able to lead those who don't know Jesus to Jesus. But I'll be honest, there are some times where that's just not the case. And whenever you have a group of more than two people, it won't always be the case. Not everything an organization or relationship does is exactly what you like. That's why what unites people the most is not what I like, but why are we here? You see, that was the problem with the Jerusalem people. There was a faction of the people who had forgotten the mission to rebuild the wall. And instead, there was a seven-foot rat snake all in them, so to speak. They were distracted by themselves. And not that we never think of ourselves. It, we do. It's okay. But to be on mission, the first question we can ask is, does this, whatever it is, does what we're doing help better lead people who don't know Jesus to their Lord and Savior? Here's another way to say it, our next fill-in. We ask people who know the love of Jesus to prioritize those who don't. Now, I need to be really clear. Whenever I talk about this, hear, hear me when I say this. That doesn't mean that those who already connected to Bethlehem or the members of Bethlehem are less important than those who don't know Jesus. Okay, do I need to say that again? It does not mean that. It's just that I'm already saved. And there are other people who are playing out on the highway. And there's cars coming. And you're safe. And so am I. I love you. We love each other. We'll continue to grow each other. But, but I need to help get that guy out of the road. We have this awesome opportunity to be about a mission that has eternal consequences. And we ask people who know the love of Jesus to prioritize those who don't. And the other thing to keep in mind is this is right in line with what the Bible teaches. Jesus was asked to summarize all of God's direction or law. What was his answer? He did it in two things. The first was, make sure to love yourself the most. No, wait, no. Love God. Love others. Love God. Love others. Take care of yourself. Make sure that you stay connected to 
Christ. Know that the family of believers is here for strength and encouragement. You'll continue to get fed at the church you belong to. But those who know the love of Jesus are going to prioritize together those who don't. And you know what? That's how we grow to be mature Christ followers, isn't it? So what did Nehemiah do? We're going to buzz through these last verses. Here's what Nehemiah did. He said, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. You know why? Because he was in charge and the group he was leading was off a mission. And that gets, got him upset. Next verse. I pondered them in my mind. I, I like this. He didn't just go off. He prayed. It's a good thing for a leader or, Christ, or any Christian to do. And then I spoke with the nobles and officials. I accused them of their wrongdoing. I told them, you're charging your own people interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, next verse, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us again. When the Jews had started to come back to Israel, there were part of the remnant that had been sold into slavery. Sounds like Nehemiah and some of the Israelites bought those slaves back their freedom only to have to sell them back into freedom again to their own people. Tangled web. They kept quiet that is, the nobles and the officials, because they could find nothing to say. You know, there's a one-word summary for that sentence. Busted. They knew it. Yeah. Verse 9. So I continued, What you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? This is, this is interesting. What Nehemiah is pointing out is that the non-believing nations around Israel are looking at you, Israelites, in disarray and lack of love. And they're wondering, what is going on with them? They defeated the threat of Sanballat and Tobiah, but now they can't even get along. You're a reproach to the Gentile enemies. Verse 10. I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us all stop charging interest. Verse 11. Give back to them immediately in their, their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. 1% of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. Verse 12. So give it back. And they said, we will give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then in the rest of the chapter, they promised an oath to follow through on what they had just promised. Now, let me just say this. This easy ending is not always what happens. God worked through Nehemiah's words and the people changed their ways. And they all got back onto mission. And we'll see that the wall got built really, really quickly, even with this hiccup. So what's our application for today? It's our last fill-in. Let's be a church that's undeniably on mission. And, and as I, I begin this, this last section, this last little encouragement, let me just say this. I'm really, really proud to be your pastor. 
We have a, a gathering of people who are not perfect, led by pastors who are not perfect, led by a council that is not perfect. But I have seen in you a passion for the mission. Who sells their building, right? We've talked about this. To set up and tear down every day, not knowing exactly when the new building would be built. We, knew, we know now, we didn't know in October. Why did we do that? Some of you are still wondering. I'll tell you why. Because we are a church that wants to be undeniably about the mission. And I hope and pray that daily we're asking the question, does, does that help lead people who don't know Jesus to their Savior? And, and hopefully I like it, but <laughs> there's a mission that unites us much, much greater. Let us be a church as we build this new building that we do ministry in to be the type of church that outsiders who haven't attended our church look at us and say, I don't know what they all teach and believe there, but I do know they're good neighbors to be around because they love the people around them and they love their community. I can tell they stand for something. But they're quick to listen and love and slow to judge. Let us be a church that when people come for the very first time and they're, they're trying to discover this whole relationship with Jesus thing that they may not believe everything the first day, but they know that they felt welcomed. And they could understand what was being sung and preached. Let us be a people that continue to do the hard work of denying self so as to be a group united by a mission through which God's strength and help, we together, can do amazing things to the glory of God in this community and maybe even bigger. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for changing our lives, changing our perspective on eternity. Now, despair has been replaced with hope. Lack of confidence replaced through Jesus with assurance of eternal life in heaven. Lord, now those of us who have been united as this church, may we together be passionate about being a church that's undeniably on mission of leading people to your son, our savior, Jesus. We'd ask for your blessing on that as we go about this building project. As we watch the walls go up, may we see people not a building. May we see opportunity, not comfort. Pray all this in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.